Today's scripture comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, good morning. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our church today. Uh, I want to just give us a roadmap for what the sermons are going to look like for the rest of 2023. Um, starting today, we're going to embark on a new teaching series on the book of Genesis, and that will actually take us to the end of June. And then for the summertime, we're, we're going to just take a break and do some topical sermons. We'll have some guest speakers. Our staff will be speaking as well. That will be a little bit more uh, of a potpourri of different topics. And then in September, we're going to pick up on Genesis again, and that will take us all the way to Christmas. And the crazy part is we're not going to even finish Genesis. We're probably only going to get like two-thirds of the way done uh, because of all the content uh, that is in this um, pretty seminal book. So that just gives you a roadmap for what all of 2023 will hold. Now, why, why are we looking at Genesis uh, starting today? Well, if two weeks ago was Easter, and Easter is all about new life, the book of Genesis is about how life began. And it's important to understand how life began, because without understanding how life began, we don't understand who we are or what the heck we are doing here. Uh, the philosopher Aristotle once said that if you really want to understand something, you first have to study its origins. So if we want to understand who we are, we have to study how we got here, our origins. This is why uh, if you've ever done therapy or counseling, at a certain point, the counselor is going to ask you about your family of origin. They want to know your context, your background, to help you understand, to help them understand who you are today. Okay? So if you really want to understand something or someone, you first have to understand their origin. Now, this is how uh, the nihilist philosopher uh, Frederick Nietzsche understood our origin and who we are today. What Nietzsche would say is that if our origin comes from nothing and our outcome is to nothing, then all we are is sandwiched between two nothings contemplating about nothingness. And so this is why he was a nihilist and eventually ended up going insane because he didn't see any point to, uh, to living this life at all. The Bible, however, would say that we don't come from nothing, but we actually come from something or someone. And our outcome is not to nothing, but our outcome is to something or someone. And therefore, what we are sandwiched between is highly meaningful and very purposeful. There's a meaning behind this life uh, that we're living today. And the reason why we know that is with the very first verse, the opening lines of the Bible in verse 1, which reads, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible does not begin with the phrase, once upon a time. It doesn't begin with the phrase, in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't begin with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Rather, it begins with how all of life began. In the beginning, God is the one that created the heavens and the earth. It's telling the story how all of life began. And what we see is that this world that we live in was created. God was not created. He's the creator, but the world was created. The world is not eternal, but God is eternal. He's the alpha and the omega. And like a magician, God is about to make everything out of nothing. In, in Latin, the phrase is ex nihilo. He makes everything out of nothing. Now, what's fascinating here is that when you take a look at ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which some of you may have read, what's fascinating about ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies is that it's always like two monsters fighting, one of them killing the other, and then that monster takes that dead person's or dead creature's carcass, and they make the land or sea out of it. But what we see in Genesis is that God doesn't need something to make something. He can take nothing and make something out of it. Furthermore, God doesn't need to kill something to make something. He doesn't have to kill, but he just has to speak. Uh, for those of you who, who have studied communication and mass media, uh, this is speech act theory, right? With a spoken word, there is an action that it that takes place. Like, for example, if I say, can you please pass the salt? Those are just words, but it creates some kind of action. And so what we see is God doing speech actively here with just a word. His words have enough power to create life. There's a story of a scientist uh, who was having a conversation with God, and he said, God, because of science, you are no longer needed. Your services were valuable for a time, but your services are no longer needed. We can now do everything that you can do. And God looks at the scientist and says, you can do everything I can do? And the scientist says, yes, we can do everything you can do. And so God looks at the scientist and says, fine, let me see you make a human being. And the scientist says, no problem. So the scientist rolls up his or her sleeves, they grab a fistful of dust, and all of a sudden, God stops him and says, oh, no, get your own dust. And the point of that is we always need something to make something. But God didn't need anything. He needed nothing, but he was able to make something. And what both ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies and the secular Genesis story require is something to make something. So whether it's a gravitational pull or some kind of black hole, or it, we need something to make something, but what we see in the Genesis uh, creation account is obviously that we do, God doesn't need anything. Now you might say, that takes a whole, I mean, that is a leap of faith. First of all, to believe in some kind of God Secondly, that God is the one that made us. And I would say you're right. It does take a leap of faith. 
But I also think that the secular stories, Genesis story or creation story, that the person next to you, that New York City, that all of this came out of some kind of just gravitational pull. I think that takes just as, just as much faith as the Genesis story we see here. The astronomer Fred Hoyle says this, a junkyard contains all the bits and pieces of a Boeing 747, dismembered and in disarray. A whirlwind happens to blow through the yard. What is the chance that after its passage, a fully assembled 747, ready to fly, will be found standing there? So small as to be negligible. Even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe. The odds of something like this happening are basically zero. This is why Lee Strobel once said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So what I want us to understand is that both creation accounts take a certain amount of faith to believe. Now, science has fallen on very hard times lately. There's a part of me that now feels like I almost had to defend science. Over the past five years, there is an increasing amount of distrust with science, which is very fascinating. Uh, and so whether that's with scientists, doctors, vaccines, masks, you name it, our society today has an increasing distrust with science. But I don't think it's science's fault per se uh, that uh, it can't fully explain all of reality. I think science in and of itself can help explain reality, but in and of itself, siloed by itself, it is insufficient. Okay, this is why we have a humanities department in our universities. This is why art and movies and music do a far better job of depicting what love is more than science. You know what science would say love is? It's a Sprite can, shake it up, chemical reaction that fizzes over. That's what love is. But we know that that's not really what love is, right? And this is where music, movies, art, paintings do a far better job of explaining the reality of what love really looks like. And so this is where we need a combination, a collaboration of all the disciplines to fully understand what life is all about. And I'm, I'm including philosophy and religion here as well. Uh, the, the former president of Cornell, Frank Rhodes, who was a geologist, once said, why is the kettle boiling? And so the person responds by saying, well, the kettle is boiling because the fire is on. There's some kind of energy conversion there. The, the water reaches a boiling point, and therefore the water is boiling. Right? It's a very scientific way of understanding why the kettle is boiling. And so the friend says, yeah, that's one reason why the kettle is boiling. But the other reason why the kettle is boiling is because I wanted to make tea for my friends. There's a sociological reason, a relational reason for also why the kettle is boiling. So my point is that we need all the disciplines to fully understand what exactly is taking place, what reality is look, uh, truly like. And when we take a look at Genesis 1, we see what we see is that the reason why God creates everything is to make a home for us. Okay? So in verse 2 to 3, it says this, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. Now, what we see here is that the earth was formless uh, and empty. And what, what's going on here is this. The earth in its current condition is uninhabitable for human life. But what we see God doing over the course of the next six days is that he is making it more and more and more inhabitable for human life. Because the reason why he made this world is for us. So I'll give you an example of this. Uh, two weeks ago, we baptized nine babies. Now, if you're expecting a baby, you have to prepare for that baby. You gotta get their room ready, gotta get a crib, bassinet, swaddles, um, strollers, milk bottles, diapers. You have to prepare in anticipation for the coming of that baby. And similarly, what God is doing here is that he is preparing the earth. He's getting it ready for us to inhabit it. Uh, this is why Francis Collins, who is uh, the head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins might not be a household name to you, but I know that Dr. Fauci is, right? You know who Dr. Fauci's boss is? Francis Collins. Collins became a Christian by looking through a microscope. And in his book, The Language of God, this is what Collins says about Genesis. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce, and there would have been no galaxy stars, planets, or people. But the way that God creates this earth is in such a perfect way that it is inhabitable for us. And what we see God doing after he creates each thing is that he says it is good. So in verse four, it says this, God saw that the light was good. So he makes all of these different things and after he creates everything, he says that it is good. Notice that he doesn't say it is perfect, but he does say it is good. In other words, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but he doesn't say it is perfect or without the possibility of things going awry or wrong, okay? And so what we see in Genesis 3 with the introduction of sin is that things do go awry and things do go wrong. I don't know if you've ever made a sandcastle before <laughs> and someone comes and steps on it. You're like, oh my gosh, you just ruined it. Or you make a sandcastle, but it's too close to the water and the tide comes in and it ruins the sandcastle that you have made. That is what sin does to the world, the earth that God has made. It taints it, it ruins it. It's still there, but it's not the same as it was before, okay? And so in Romans 8.22, this is why the Apostle Paul writes this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so when someone steps on your sandcastle or when you see a tide come in and it ruins your sandcastle, what do you do? You're like, you moan. You're like, ugh, you groan, right? And because of sin, the earth itself is moaning and groaning because of the curse of sin, the frustration that we 
that, that, it, that is taking place. And so what that means is that because we now live in this world, this sort of ruined sandcastle, the relationship that we have with this physical earth is also broken. This is why we also experience frustration with the world that we live in. So for example, natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, pests that destroy any farming, um, and the list goes on and on. We experience a type of frustration living in, in this world, this physical world, but we not only experience a type of frustration living in this physical world, but we even experience a type of frustration with our physical bodies as well. I was at a conference not too long ago, and uh, I was at a seminar about this size, and the speaker said, uh, raise your hands if you're taking some kind of medication for pain relief or some kind of disease that you have. And the room was like predominantly 20s, 30s, and 40s. So I thought maybe 25% of the room would raise their hands. You know how many people actually raise their hands? People that are on some kind of med? Almost half the room raised their hands uh, that they're taking some kind of medication. There's a kind of frustration that we not only experience with the physical world, but even our physical bodies. My father had a stroke about four years ago. He is uh, paralyzed uh, from top to bottom on the entire right side of his body and is in a wheelchair. My father is experiencing a kind of frustration with his own physical body. And we experience that too. We experience mental health issues. So there's a frustration even with our minds. Uh, we have body image issues. There's a frustration with our entire you know, physical body. Our transgender friends who experience a kind of gender dysphoria. What is, what is the most common narrative? I don't feel at home in my own body, right? And so what, what the Bible would say is that the reason why there's a kind of frustration that we all experience uh, is because sin has touched every element of this physical world and even our physical bodies itself. But here is the good news. Right? The good news of the Bible that we see in Christianity is that the book of Genesis is not just about creation, but when you read the rest of scripture, it's, all, it's also about recreation as well. And the way that we are recreated, okay, and this world is recreated, our bodies are recreated, is through the body of Jesus Christ. Our creator entered into our creation and took on a suit of flesh and a suit of skin and became just like one of us. And his body was also susceptible to pain suffering, sorrow, grief, just like us. In fact, it was even susceptible to death itself. And what we see Jesus do at the very end of his life on the cross as his physical body is hanging on the cross is that he takes on the world's sins and it is on the cross when the Father turns his face away that in a sense, Jesus is decreated. He dies. He's able to taste death. But what we also know three days later is that in a sense he's recreated or resurrected with a glorified new body as well. And that's great hope uh, for uh, every, uh, every single one of us. And so what that means is that as Christians, we have a responsibility uh, to care for 
uh, this world that God has made, not only because he'll recreate it one day, but because the world that he made right now uh, is his. I want to read to you a statistic from the Barna Group that came out just a few years ago. This was actually shared at the men's retreat, but I want to, I want to share this statistic with a twist. The Barna Group discovered that young, uh, the teenagers in particular, 32% of U.S. teens say that viewing porn is usually or always wrong. 56% of U.S. teens and adults say that not recycling is usually or always wrong. Now, if you shared that stat with my generation, our floors would have dropped to the ground. Because in my generation, the floors would have, the percentages would have been flipped. And so while it's not good uh, that there's a normativity now with watching porn, it is good that the next generation cares so much about the environment and the world that we live in. I don't know about you, but for me, do you know how many sermons I've heard about taking care of the environment my whole life? I grew up in the church. You know how many sermons I've heard? Two. One was last year from Pastor Gene. <laughs> the other was from Tim Keller like 30 years ago because he's like the most woke person I've ever met. Uh, and he's able to see things into the future. I've heard two sermons my whole life about taking care of the earth that God has made. And yet, what does Genesis 2.15 say? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Now, keep in mind that this is Genesis 2. This is not Genesis 3 or 4 after the introduction of sin. God isn't telling Adam, okay, because of sin, I want you to take care of the garden. No, he's saying, regardless of sin, before the introduction of sin, because I made this world, I want you to take care of this world that I have made. And so we have a responsibility to steward this world. Now, one of the reasons why it's a challenge for us to care for the world like we should. Uh, I think Gus Speth, the Dean of Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies says it well. When Speth says this, I used to think that top global environmental problems were uh, biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation, and we scientists don't know how to do that. So what Darwin would say is that uh, our biological legacy inclines us to be selfish. The Bible, however, would say that, no, it's not our biological legacy, it's actually our spiritual legacy. Uh, that inclines us to be selfish. And so what science cannot do is that it, it cannot teach us about ethics and morality. It can tell us what is, but it can't tell us why we should or should not do something. When you do that, the moment you do that, you're entering into the domain of religion and uh, philosophy and, and ethics. And again, this is not a knock on science, but again, to my point, we need all the disciplines to fully understand the reality and the world that we live in. And again, the great hope, though, that we see in Scripture is that we are not without hope. 
we don't have to figure out a way to live on Mars, okay? Because the storyline of the Bible, if you follow it, is not just about creation, uh, but it's about recreation as well through the body of Jesus himself, okay? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment if the gospel was this, your sins are all forgiven, you have eternal life, but you have to live in Cleveland for all of eternity. All right, I was going to say Staten Island, but that hits, that hits close to some of y'all. But imagine if all of your sins forgiven, you had eternal life, but you had to live in Cleveland. Would that be like the greatest story ever told? I don't think so. That's a better story than what you're hearing, what we have now. But the full breadth of the gospel is that our sins are forgiven, we have eternal life, and we experience a new heavens and a new earth uh, as well. The theologian Anthony Hookama writes this, because of man's fall into sin, a curse was pronounced over the creation. God now sent his son into this world to redeem that creation from the results of sin. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals, not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-bought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem the entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth until paradise lost becomes paradise regained. This is why Martin Luther said that the gospel is not only in the Bible, but it's on trees, rocks, and mountains. Because even they, one day, in their moaning and groaning, in their broken and ruined sandcastle state, even they one day will experience a kind of recreation as well, a new paradise. So the gospel is not just about our individual salvation, but to a certain extent, the salvation of the earth that we live in as well. And so this is why, if you look at the vestibule, we're recycling, uh, we're doing a clothing drive and we're recycling our clothes because most of our clothes end up in landfills. Cotton is also a very thirsty crop. Uh, so it takes an enormous amount of water to feed cotton. Animals can also do a number on our environment as well. My wife works at LinkedIn this past Friday. Uh, they celebrated Earth Day and everything was vegetarian, which is why I didn't go in that day. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, you, you, get, you get the point. Um, but I think the tension is that oftentimes the way that we uh, our relationship with the earth that we live in is like a uh, leased car. You know, when you lease a car, it's not like a rental car. Like, the leased car is yours for two to three years. So you want to, you know, like, kind of keep it in good condition. But you don't always get an oil change on time, and you don't always get the best gas. You get, like, the cheapest gas. And so our relationship with it is like, you know, we kind of treated okay, but like not the best way possible like we would if we actually owned the car. And oftentimes that's the way it is with our relationship with the earth. Like we're not going to be here forever. You know, we'll do what we can for the next generation maybe at best, which is even then like pragmatic reasons. But for us, the reason why we are called to care for the earth that we live in well is because this is God's earth. 
This is the world that he has made. And one day he will recreate it again. But in the meantime, just as he told Adam and Eve to take care of the garden, we are called to care for this garden as well. Let me close with one final quote from uh, one of my favorite thinkers, Neil Postman. Uh, that, that name might ring a bell to many of you. Um, Postman was not a Christian. Uh, I'm actually shocked that he wasn't uh, when I read his writings. He was a professor at NYU uh, for a very long time before he passed. Uh, and in his book, Science and the Story That We Need, let me just read this quote and then I'll close this. Galileo, Kepler, and Newton did not think of their story as a replacement for the great Judeo-Christian narrative, but as an extension of it. Science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers probably by an accident. To the question, how would it all end, science answers probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. This is very, again, Nietzschean. Moreover, the science God has no answer to the question, why are we here? And to the question, what moral instructions do you give us? The science God maintains silence. Where shall we find such a story? And I believe that this story is found in the greatest book that has ever been written, the Bible. And what you will discover as, as you read the Bible, you are not only reading it, but as you read the Bible, you will discover that it is actually reading you. And it is telling you about your life, how you got here, the purpose of life, and your destiny as well. So this is our start of the book of Genesis. Come back next week, and we'll pick up again from where we left off. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for um, this earth that you have made perfectly habitable for us. We know that, you know, much like Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth, there is a sort of darkness that is over it as well um, from the curse of sin. Um, but help us, much like you told Adam and Eve, to take care of this earth that you have made, which is a gift that is given to us, and you don't trash a gift you treasure the gift. And so as our world experiences groans and pains, help us to take care of this world. And also help us to have a hope that our ultimate hope is not in this world in its current state, but you offer this world salvation as well. A new heavens and a new earth that, will, that you are preparing and have been preparing for us. And so we thank you also for the hope that we have uh, because of what your son has done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.